How do I get FDA approval for a medical device? How do I get funding? How do I sell a medical device? How do I, how do I, how do I? I'm Kayleen Brown, Managing Editor for Device Talks. We are on a mission to unravel the complexities of the medical device product development cycle. In each episode, we take a deep dive into a specific stage of this journey, guided by the expertise of senior medtech leaders who have not only experienced it, but have mastered it. This is MedTech Women Talks. Kirsten Carroll, welcome to MedTech Women Talks. We are here today at Device Talks West, October 18th and 19th, 2023 in Santa Clara. Really appreciate you spending your time with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to do this. I want to take it back. Now, this is a really different narrative that we're going to have today where you didn't have a kind of traditional, I had an idea, I developed a product, I went through that entire life cycle, now I'm a CEO and I've moved on from there. I mean, you've been with the large OEMs and I'll have you go into that shortly. You went from large OEM to uh, what would have been considered a startup, as we know, is imperative care, which is not a startup any longer, to you know, pivoting a little bit outside of bed tech into can-do health. So can you take us back? How did you get into medical devices? Take it away, Kirsten. Yeah, so um, I went to college thinking I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon. I was a swimmer. I had shoulder injuries all the time. I was going to become an orthopedic surgeon and I was going to fix people like me. Uh, And it was actually, I took a history of medicine class my sophomore year that got me thinking maybe I didn't want to practice medicine. Uh, I had a shoulder injury that sort of ended my swimming career. And there was a brand new major and it was a major in biomedical engineering. And I thought, I want to do that. I want to do biomedical engineering, and I want to work on the technologies that clinicians use to treat their patients. Um, I got to take a wonderful class on creativity and product design, a gentleman named Henry Bolanos, uh, who was an extraordinary early mentor to me and and has since passed on. Um, But I sort of got this idea, which was a bit strange at this time where med device wasn't that big a thing, that I was going to be in medical devices. It was a brand new major. The classes were all sort of kludged together in a way that I was never in the core of the thing I knew well. I was taking mechanical engineering with the Mechie majors and I was taking fluid dynamics and I was taking differential equations. I was taking biology. And this led to me deciding I wasn't a very good engineer and there wasn't a career path in that. Uh, And I got really lucky in falling into product management. Uh, at a little startup company that was working in embolic protection. Um, I remember before I graduated, I flew and did a weekend course on sort of CFR design control regulation and what what does it mean to work in design control? And then I was off to the races of this tiny little startup. Uh, I decided pretty quickly that I needed more education to be doing what I was doing and was lucky enough to get into uh, the MBA MPH program at UC Berkeley Uh, So I I did that. It was a five-semester program. But I think the lasting thing that had happened in my early experience was developing this passion for neurovascular care. Uh, So moving up from the carotids into the brain, uh, my entire essay when I applied to UC Berkeley and it said, what do you want to do with your career? I want to make stroke treatable. 
So there was one company I felt like was really focused on that and that was Boston Scientific. And I called up someone I knew there, talked my way into a summer internship. Uh, and that was the next 15 years of my life with that group. And, and I loved them dearly in spite of having advanced to the next thing in my career. So it was eight years at Boston Scientific Neurovascular and then uh, they divested our division and sold it to Stryker Neurovascular. So then another seven years at Stryker uh, before I went on this path now with imperative care and can do. And blown away, I have not heard the story yet of kind of piecing together medical technology major. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I have many questions that came from that question. Was there a specific course or class that you took when you were piecing it together that helped you maybe validate that medical technology is a space you wanted to continue exploring? Again, it was this creativity and product design class with Henry Bolanos. Um, and, and he was a medical device person. He had been VP of R&D at U.S. Surgical. He did a, little, a lot of the early stapling IP. Um, and so Henry's the one who made me aware that this was a possibility. Um, but then, of course, I had no idea what product management was. I sort of fell into that. And I think if I look back academically, um, I really sort of, if I wasn't going to be a doctor, I was going to be a writer. Uh, it was a really hard decision to be a science major and not an English major. And this career, this early career of product management allowed me to bring these things together. This ability to speak R&D and speak engineering um, and the ability to communicate. And such a big part of my role in product management was sort of understanding what the clinicians need, breathing that in and then breathing it out and packaging it up in a way that the engineers could use it, right? My job was to define problems in such a way that the engineers could go find a million creative ways to solve that problem because they understood it so well, but not dictating the solution to them, right? And there's an art in that, in problem definition and not dictating a solution. Two very powerful skill sets. Yeah. Clearly led to an incredibly successful career in medical technology. Mm. I want to take a step away from your experience and talk a little bit about the medical device product development cycle itself. So where would you say your role, which is kind of hard to define based off of your incredible experience, but if you could try to define it, where do you, could, could you ignore your title, ignore the company uh, that you work with, can do help, and how would you define your role? Yeah, and, and I think we do need to separate those things because a big part of my career right now as a first-time CEO is moving on from the role that I've traditionally done where I sort of made a name for myself. So let's talk about sort of what I built my career and reputation on and not what I'm doing as CEO. Um, so it's really interesting, and this is something I've learned as I've transitioned into digital health and working with tech and that it's unique in med device that product management sits in marketing instead of sitting in R&D. So in tech, product management sits with engineering uh, and marketing is more about branding and downstream demand generation, selling, et cetera. In medical device, product management as this sort of life cycle approach sits in the marketing department. And that means that as an exceptional product manager or director of marketing or whatever it may, may be, you have this incredible opportunity to stay with the life cycle of the product. And, and one thing I always caution if a CEO or a division president is pressuring 
a marketing team to have an exceptional best in class commercialization. If you haven't gotten it right from the very early understanding of the product need and why you're building it and who you're building it for, you're not going to have as effective a commercialization. It starts at the very beginning and understanding the clinical need you're solving and understanding the user needs of the clinicians who are touching that product and understanding how they make decisions. What are the claims that I'm gonna to wanna to be able to make about this product in two, three years down the line to allow for an exceptional commercialization, right? And so the thing that I always did and the thing I loved in the way they structured marketing at the companies I was at was that I did get to sit with a product for years. And so maybe I'm a little different in that I wasn't looking for that next job every six months. I wasn't looking for that grow my career or my title. I lived and breathed a single product for five years from concept to launch and, and really got to say that was so much about me and what I did in you know, I, in neurointervention in particular, I got to grow up with these physicians, right? The, the, the ladies and gentlemen who are leading the field now were coming out of residency as I was starting my career. And we all grew up together. And I would go and I would watch their cases and I would learn what they needed. And I knew exactly how they held their catheter and I knew exactly what freaked them out. And I knew exactly how they got frustrated. And all of that went into writing that initial market spec or user needs document and there's so much strategy in doing that well, and it sets the tone for the entire product. Sorry, that was a long answer, but. No, I mean, you're the true embodiment of medical technology development. <laughs> I mean, you're from concept to commercialization. I, I feel like I won the lottery. Oh. <laughs> so Sorry, I mean, I, I love it. I think like my favorite job ever uh, for the longest time was being a product manager at that early stage of my career, right? Um, living and breathing with my clinicians and my engineers and, and getting to do that all day long. Well, we're going to definitely dig into that. So you had kind of touched, you, you said that uh, kind of where you want to begin development is at the beginning, of course. Uh, but you had talked about how the early stages and the considerations of the early stages is, is really integral to the entire process. I'm trying to understand where product development and your role sort of fits in into the entire cycle. I mean, is it the cycle? Or is it a stage within the cycle? Yeah, I mean, so if we talk about the cycle, so so I moved from product management and marketing into strategic development. And so if you think there's a cycle in running a business, the first one is developing your strategy. Do you know where to play, how to win, how to sequence it? Do you know the economic logic of what you're trying to do? Can you articulate that? From there, you go into portfolio planning. What are the sets of products that I'm going to develop to actually achieve that strategy? What are the bets I'm going to place? I have this many dollars put into R&D and clinical. Where are they going to go? And then from portfolio planning, you go into operational planning. How am I going to resource this, right? How many engineers on the team? How many product managers? How many clinical team members, et cetera? And you're off to the races in execution. So there's that overarching sort of life cycle management, company strategy management that has to be done. If you're a product manager, you are now given that result of that portfolio planning and operating planning process. You are developing a product that is intended to play this role in the company, achieve these things. These are the resources you've been given. You have a project manager in the center who's organizing everybody, but now your job as the product manager, again, is to write that initial opening document of 
what are the user needs that we're deciding to address? And that's a really big deal. I have a colleague, Chad Rue, and one of my favorite things he ever said to me is, Kirsten, I can do anything, but I can't do everything. And that's true of a product as well. If you try to write a user needs document for the perfect product that achieves everything and satisfies every user, you are never gonna get to market, right? So you have to understand who this product is built for, which situation it's built for, what are the things that are absolutely immovable and what it has to achieve, and where can you give a little? And you set that tone and you help the whole team understand why are we doing this and what does success look like? I'm hearing a lot of collaboration and I think that's an incredible phrase where you, can, you, you can't you do everything. I mean, I, I didn't. Right, the I product mean, can't do everything, right. the company can't do everything. Exactly, so let's talk about collaboration. Yeah. So, um, at what point do you collaborate with the other groups? So R&D, clinical affairs, um, engineering, like at what stage do you oh, collaborate? from the beginning. From the beginning. All at once? So, I mean, you should have a core team. So, so while marketing or product management is responsible for writing the user needs document, you should never do that in a vacuum where you're not bouncing it off the people who now have to take it into what is the spec that goes with that user need? How are we gonna prove that it works? So a couple of my favorite things to do as a product manager. One of them is to write a flowchart of every single step of how this product is gonna be used. Starting with how do I identify it on the shelf? How do I pull it off the shelf? How do I open it, right? Every single step is an opportunity for something to be done wrong. Every single step is an opportunity to delight your end user. So you're gonna need your clinical experts involved in understanding all those steps, all of those techniques, all of the choices, et cetera. As you write a user need, you may think you're incredibly articulate. You may think it is obvious what you meant. Inevitably, an engineer reading it might have interpreted it differently. So when you're developing a market spec, you start with called a numeric. That's sort of a draft revision you're working on. And then the first time you lock it in that this is the market spec we're working off of, you go to alpha. And alpha means this is sort of a document controlled, locked in thing that not just marketing is signed off on, but R&D, clinical, regulatory, we've all agreed to this set of user needs. The very next thing that I like to do is start talking about at the end of product development, how are we gonna prove that we actually met these user needs? What does that test look like? Is it a hands-on evaluation? Is it a lab evaluation? Is it a benchtop test? Because when you actually start talking about how am I gonna prove it and what's the claim I'm gonna make, all of the sudden you start realizing all the places that people misunderstood, right? Oh, you said it needed to be soft. I thought that meant it had to be bendable. It turns out it's actually how hard it pokes, right? A completely different understanding of what the word soft might mean to somebody. Um, so the collaboration should be from day one. And uh, there is nothing worse than having a user needs document or a market spec that feels like a box checking exercise and isn't adding value or that people disagree with and think, well, I wanna work on a different product than what was articulated here. I don't understand why I'm working on this. That reminds me of another point of clarification. Can you walk me through the difference between design verification and design validation? Yeah. Absolutely. These are such important concepts in design control. And um, there's very different roles for product management or marketing in each of them. So when you go through design control, we just talked a lot about establishing user needs, understanding what people need uh, when they use the product. Um, 
And from there, your engineers are gonna translate those into specifications. So if I say the product needs to be able to get to this vessel in the brain, uh, the engineers are gonna say, well, that means it needs to be this flexible, it needs to be this soft, it needs to be this long, right? They turn it into specifications. So when you do design verification, you're proving that you meet the specification. However, that was written. The product is long enough, it's flexible enough, it's soft enough, the transitions are in the right places, and it does that reliably every single time that you use it. That's design verification. But if you remember, we didn't start with a spec, we started with the user need. The user need was it needs to be able to get to this part of the anatomy. So now you have a product coming out of design verification that meets all of the specifications, is built and performing as intended. The question now is, can you get to that anatomy? Or does that doctor say this feels good in their hands? And so that's where design validation comes in. So when I said you want to agree early on that we all understand this user need and we're going to prove that we actually met the user need in the end, that's design validation. And so that's where if you have a really great product manager who understands the use environment and the users, they're going to work with you on what is a legitimate design validation plan that is going to represent the end case, represent the people using it, and prove to ourselves that the product we built are doing the same thing. And, and so there's an analogy that I give sometimes for early product managers, and it's a kind of silly one, but let's say somebody wants a hot bath. Right? You have all uniformly agreed somebody wants a hot bath. You write in the product spec this needs, or in the user need, this needs to be a hot bath. The engineers are then going to say a hot bath is 110 degrees. And then they're going to design the bath to be 110 degrees. And they're going to make sure statistically they meet 110 degrees every single time. <laughs> At the end of the day, you still need to put somebody in that bathtub and say, is this actually hot? You don't need to put 200 people in the bathtub. You're going to know pretty quickly after three people get in, right? But that's your design validation is putting someone in the bath and saying, is it actually hot? That definitely helps clarify that. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I had a chuckle because the statistic accuracy. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's different types of people, except for you. I mean, we were talking about your background and you have two different skill sets. You have this kind of scientific brain. You have this... In this uh, humani the humanities is what I was trying right. to look for. Yeah. So in engineering and sciences, humanities equal really seeing how a product isn't just developed, but how it's used. Is it, in and then kind of like the the later stages of how it's being used. I mean, is it is it comfortable? Is it not just meeting the goal, but is it providing you know, more than just that comfort? Oh, I'm, I'm really, I'm escaping the terminology, but it's yeah, not just well, about... So I think whether you're running a company or you're running a clinical procedure, and particularly in stroke where everything is so time sensitive, um, being aware of how people make decisions. Are they getting the information that they need? Are they able to make a decision? Do they know how to manage this product well? Um, being cognizant of that when you're designing a product. Are they getting the visual the haptic, whatever other feedback it is, and do they know in advance how to use it? If I turn it this way, it's going to do that. If I push it that way, it's going to go here, right? But so much is not just understanding how people touch things, but understanding how people think and make decisions. That's really, really important. It's a much better way of putting it than I was trying to grasp my way through. Just really trying to understand how people think. So 
kind of in into that same category when you test a product I, i'm assuming you have to have a diverse group of people because people think differently and different backgrounds think differently and approach things differently. so how do you manage that yeah well so it starts with again knowing which segment of users you developed this for and you are never going to have a singular product that everybody uniformly loves um, and so making sure that the team understands this is the product for this type of clinician who uses these techniques or maybe this one needs to bridge two or three types of clinicians and making sure that you are bringing people in and you know the users well enough I knew, and I'm not going to name names, but I knew this is my person who is all about feel and is an artist. And this is my person who is all about speed. And this is my person who is all about predictability. And, and they are so obviously that person. I can bring in each of them and have them do the evaluation. And I know how I'm going to perform with, with each of these groups. I'm really targeting the the right person to test the product at the right time. Yeah. That's a really interesting approach. And one I've not really heard before, but again, I'm really trying to understand the product development cycle. So it's not to say that it's not being done. Yeah, finding the clinicians who are consistent in what they want and who are really good at articulating what they're feeling, what they need, what they like, what they don't like, that's really important. So as a product manager or a director or a VP, Anybody in MedDevice should have that Rolodex of the people that they know. These are my go-to people that I know I can call them up and have them come in and touch my product. And they're going to give me useful feedback in whether it's hit the mark and, and how we make it better. There is no value in promoting a brand of a company or a product that doesn't actually match what that product is delivering, right? It becomes lip service. It becomes silly. When you have a product that you say, this is what it's going to do. This is the role it's going to play in your practice. This is how it's going to perform. And then the product actually does it. It's so powerful. And now you have an incredible launch and an incredible brand and something people keep coming back to um, and using. So how do you bridge that gap? Which part? I mean, how do you take, how do you get a product that is validated? It does what you say it's going to do. Right. It performs the way it's going to perform. And then now you bring it to the end user yeah, so there's, um, there's one, which is how do you make the pro- sure that the product feels and performs the way that they expect? And that is in your design validation testing again. Do you have the right bench models? Do you have the right users? You should, you should know your product inside out and better than your end users in an ideal situation before you even bring it to them. There's then the piece about claims that you're going to make about patient outcomes, safety, and efficacy, right? And you may need these for a number of reasons. So that gets into your clinical evidence generation. So when you talk about generating clinical evidence and a strategy around that, you almost have to start at the same place you did as a product manager. What are the user needs for evidence? So why do you have clinical evidence? You have clinical evidence to convince somebody to make a decision. You're trying to convince a regulator to let you sell this, You're trying to convince a payer to actually subsidize it. You're trying to convince a physician to take it off the shelf. You're trying to convince a hospital to put it on the shelf. So the first thing you have to understand is how are each of those stakeholders making that decision? What is the thing that's going to convince my neurosurgeon to use this, my hospital administrator to put it on the shelf, my payer to cover it? And then what is the evidence generation strategy that will achieve this? 
is it a randomized prospective trial? Is it a propensity matched analysis? Is it anecdotal user experience? And importantly, what's the endpoint? Do they compare about health economic data? Do they compare about care about safety data? Do they care about clinical outcomes? You know, in in terms of ability to live your life, quality of life, etc. So you can do the exact same thing you did in what does the product need to be? What does the evidence need to be? And then you don't spend $20 million generating clinical evidence that fails to move the needle. Oh, that really helps clarify. So you talked about clinical data, but clinical trials. So at what point does your role interact with those kind of two spaces? I mean, I can't imagine that it's early on, but maybe it is. I mean, my mantra is it's never too early for any of this. So when you're the product manager and you write that user needs, the product needs to do all these things, you're also drawing a line in the sand. These are the claims I want to make about my device. So now you are already having conversations or you can start with your regulatory team, your clinical team. What is going to allow me to say that about my device? Is it a bench test? Is it a clinical trial? What does the strength of that trial need to be? So you likely can map out years in advance of launching what is the trial that I'm going to need to do? What's the benchtop data I'm going to need to aggregate? And everybody can plan that into the product development so that you don't have to do it sequentially. Now I've launched the product. Now I'm going to start thinking about the claims I want to make. The claims should have been planned at the start with the user needs. And the evidence generation strategy should go right along with the claims you intend to make. So then maybe product development cycle isn't the right terminology. Is it product development spectrum? continue? I mean, there's, I think there is a cycle. You establish your user need, you translate those to specifications, you verify that you met them, you uh, validate your manufacturing process, you validate you met your user needs, you generate your evidence, right? And then when the product's in market, the reason this becomes a cycle is inevitably you start hearing new things about what you need to do differently or better. The feedback loop. And all of those are informing your new user needs. So it is absolutely a cycle. Understand your user needs, develop the product, get it to market, prove that it's working, and keep feeding back on your innovation. That's what your FDA auditors are looking for when they're asking about post-market surveillance, when they're asking about design control. Is this working effectively? Um, it's not a cycle in terms of who is involved at which stage. That core team around a product, clinical, regulatory, R&D, marketing, should be a team from day one. Once it's to market, and you're starting getting feedback from the users, be it a clinician or the, the hospitals or even, I mean, what have you. Are you involved with the new iterations of the product or is it a new team? Yeah, so that depends on how your company is structured. Some companies structure their teams around upstream, which is developing that product, and downstream, which is launching and sustaining that product. And if you're doing that, it is important you have really strong handoffs between those teams because it is a cycle uh, and people feel ownership and passion about it. Other companies organize around a product. You are the product manager for this as it goes out to market and launches and as it comes back. You know, arguably, it's a luxury to find a talented, exceptional person who's willing to stay with a product for three, five, seven years and keep doing that. Um, but it is possible, right? It, it's how I grew in my own career was sticking with products and franchises for a long time. 
and launching multiple products on top of each other. And I started out as a product manager and then I was a group product manager and then I was a director, right? But I did that over 15 years, eight years really to get to director. And then I moved into strategic planning and development. You really helped connect the dots for me. Uh, so I really appreciate your time. Are there any last thoughts or something that you want our audience is trying to understand the medical device product continuum like I am, something that you think is important to share. Yeah, I mean, so there's so much that you'll hear in a lot of places. I, I am a lover of language and we've talked about that. I read all the time. I love learning other languages. And I think the greatest successes that I've had in my own career in product development is not assuming everybody is speaking the same language, they understand what the words mean, they understand what the attention was. And that starts with how you talk to the clinicians um, and translates into how you communicate it to R&D and translates it in how you present it in your collateral and materials, but be a lover of language, right? Explore what it means for something to be reliable or easy or soft or flexible. There are actually a million ways those can be interpreted by a product team. And so this is where sort of specificity and intentionality serves a product manager well. When I said this, I meant this, this experience, this feeling, this touch. It did not mean you need to make it nine pounds of force and six centimeters. You as the engineer get to figure out how to solve this problem, but we are all speaking the same language. And so I guess maybe that's my unique contribution to all this. Uh, and then the other one would be, I think people get very territorial. I own the customer, I own the product. And that's where things break down. So like I was saying, when you write a market spec, you may be responsible for authoring it and getting it over the line. You should be checking with my engineers. Does this make sense to you? Have I phrased it in a way that's impossible? Am I doing cross-functional reviews of this document that's laying the foundation of this product in a way that everybody's bought into it? And everybody along the way should be doing that. Nobody has sole ownership over any of this. And all those perspectives on the upstream and downstream consequences of the way you wrote it are so powerful in getting you to a place where you execute well. Well, you made me so incredibly happy for sharing your time with me. I really appreciate it. I am a proud ambassador for lover of language, lover of collaboration, and lover of medical technology. Wonderful. So, thank you. Christine Carroll, Can Do Health, Thank you for joining us on MedTech Women Talks. I cannot thank you enough for your time. Oh, of course, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. And season one, episode one is a wrap. Thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of MedTech Women Talks. Please share this episode on social media, to your coworkers, to that new hire who's overwhelmed by the nuances of MedTech, and to that seasoned executive who is looking for a way to educate and inspire. Please like, follow, and subscribe to the Device Talks Podcast Network to never miss an episode. And speaking of never missing an episode, our next will feature Dr. Katherine Riker, Senior Director, Human Factors, and User Research at Intuitive. We'll be exploring the med device development cycle from the perspective of the engineer. But before I let you go, I'd like to shout a big thank you from our figurative rooftop to our sponsors, Aptix. Catalyze Healthcare, Confluent Medical, and Cretix. It is only with their support that we've been able to create this incredible series. Want to join the best sponsors in MedTech? There's still time. Connect with me on LinkedIn or reach out to our Device Talks Editorial Director, Tom Salemi. Once again, 
I'm Kayleen Brown of Device Talks. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back in three weeks with Dr. Katherine Riger of Intuitive. <laughs>